What is going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. This is episode 40 of the show. I am Carlos Colazzo, joined as always by Ben Badler. What's up, Ben? Doing good, Carlos. Although, looking outside my window, seeing snow while you were out in where in Texas watching baseball. So I was a little, little jealous of you, gotta yeah. say. Yeah, that doesn't sound too fun dealing with snow. And, and right now, outside of my window, it's 70 degrees here back in Virginia. So what's the temperature for you in Massachusetts right now? Uh, I don't know. I'm staying inside because it's snowing. So <laughs> it's, it's like the did... warmest it's been. It was weird, actually. I, I When you typically think of Texas, you think of warm weather, obviously. Um, I like like to travel in shorts um, just because I hate being like really hot on the plane. Um and it was like, I think in the 50s here in Virginia when I left. And I got down in Texas and it was very chilly. It was like in the in the 40s, I think. And uh, I went and picked up the rental car and the guy was like, why are you wearing shorts right now? And it's always funny when people in the South, um, like what their <laughs> cold is compared to what cold is, especially for you, but even, even further up in like the North Carolina, Virginia area for me. I was like, yeah. I was like, uh, I'm, I came from Virginia. And then I was like, hmm. That that's backwards. That that shouldn't be the case. Uh, it should be getting warmer. But um, yeah, they they had a little bit of cold air while I was down there. But it was at Globe Life Field, which is indoors. So even if it was snowing, we would have been fine. Got to well, see they that. have the 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 series between this weekend coming up between Pepperdine and Alabama, which is in Malibu or was gonna be in Malibu. They canceled that. <laughs> that's it's kind of wild to think about that happening in in california right now yeah it really is so uh, but either way it was great to to get on the field um to see some actual live baseball we'll get into that in a bit a few housekeeping notes i wanted to mention just at the top of the show um we do have an email for the podcast now so if you guys want to send in questions um really at any point for any episode hopefully that'll be just a nice way for us to collect a bunch of questions that you have um, maybe a little bit easier for you to add some context to your questions or ask, ask a little bit longer questions in email. I know we previously have taken them um, over Twitter and over Instagram, and we're still happy if, if you guys want to reach out and send us questions there. But I think the best place um, to send any questions, if you have them, as you think of them, will be uh, at futureprojection at baseballamerica.com. I will leave that in the show notes so you guys have that. And, and from here on out, they should always be there in the show notes just so if you need the email you have it but please send us along your emails send us your questions send us your comments if you have any show feedback um, that'll be a really great spot to send it to both Ben and myself we'll both have access to to all the emails that you send there um, it's it's been really good to just start taking your questions again and I know that's definitely a part of the show we like to have regularly so any questions that you have future projection at baseballamerica.com uh, before we get into the show today, Ben, any other housekeeping, anything on the site we want to mention? I know um, this weekend, as you guys are listening to this podcast on Friday, it will be the day that it drops, at least if you're listening on day one, we have our Fantasy Summit, um, which will be taking place this weekend on Saturday. I would encourage anyone who's interested in fantasy baseball to sign up for that, check that out. Any, any other details on that, Ben, or anything else you want to mention before we dive into the show? 
Yeah, I think the fantasy summit's going to be great. It's an all-day event. If you're if you're listening to this podcast, I hope you're already a BA subscriber. If you're listening to us talk about prospects for two hours every week, hopefully you're. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming you're a pretty diehard fan and and care about prospects. So it's, if you're a subscriber, it's going to be free for you. Uh, if you're not, just sign up for a BA subscription, and you'll get automatic access to the event. It's it's definitely for the hardcore uh, audience and and players uh, out there so it's going to be all day event I think it's going to be really really good seminar that uh, that these guys are going to put on yeah so it's fantasy focus we've got a bunch of fantasy experts who will be there I'll be there talking draft stuff that maybe can tie into uh, different dynasty leagues that you're in Um, but I'm excited to watch it just from my perspective and it'll be fun to, to hop on and talk some draft stuff as well we've got a lot of draft talk on the docket today obviously seeing players in person helps that um it's just been fun to see these guys starting their seasons uh, we're fully in the mix of things already hearing about players moving up boards um but ben you wanted to start us out on a bit of a bummer you didn't want to talk about any live real baseball you wanted to talk about injuries we yeah that's injuries. exactly how i phrased it to you carl yeah. let's let's start the show on a a down note but it's i mean this is the time of year right where players are just ramping up both in in college baseball and in high school baseball and obviously for for minor league prospects too they start coming back or they start ramping up again in you know maybe december or january and then oh something doesn't feel right here's an injury there's an injury this guy's gonna have tommy john surgery so yeah. love spring training but it is definitely that time of year where players are gonna come back and, and get hurt and go down for for the whole year in some cases and uh, unfortunately for guardians fans two of their top prospects right now are are facing injuries and i i mean I guess we'll we'll go over them first, and then I'll ask you kind of your thoughts on 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 them. But Daniel Espino, right-handed pitcher, who was the Guardians' number one prospect, although we, after the news of the injury, we moved him down to number two, and we we dropped him a little bit on our top one hundred. But uh, the Guardians sent out a release saying he had quote. Uh, lingering shoulder soreness and swelling after a throwing session in January, uh, strain of his subscapularis and a tear of the anterior capsule of his shoulder. Uh, and then they said at least eight weeks of time down from throwing prior to initiating a return to progression. So eight weeks before he even starts throwing again. Obviously, he missed so much time, almost the entire season last year. Now it was because of the knee, Mm -hmm. not because of the shoulder. But shoulder especially is scary. And it's a a bummer to hear because I think you can make a case. He he has – his raw stuff stacks up among the best in – my, in the minor leagues. I mean, we have this elite trio, I think, of Andrew Painter and Yuri Perez and, and Grayson Rodriguez. And then below him, you know, it's a little bit more open after that. But I think Espino, at least prior to this injury, fit right up in, in that next group of players. I think you can argue that he has just the best fastball 
in baseball. He's, you know, when he, when he's healthy, sitting mid to upper 90s, touching triple digits. It's explosive life to go with the fastball, too. And to see him, you know, have this injury, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty unfortunate, obviously. And then Chase DeLouder, their first-round pick from last year, outfielder, I think we just talked to him on the last episode of the podcast or maybe a couple episodes, but uh, they said small fracture at the base of his fifth toe uh, surgery he had on January 10th to uh, replace his left foot screw with a bone graft in the area of the fracture and anticipate a return to play time frame of four to five months, which would be uh, by my math, what, June, July. So he's mm-hmm. going to miss probably the first half of the season. So, yeah. um, you know, I, with, with DeLouder, I don't, I'm not as concerned right, as far as his long-term projection. It's, you know, going to set him back and obviously it's going to prevent him from playing. But I'm, I'm, I think I'm more concerned with the injury to, Espino and what it means for his long-term projection. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I feel like I'm a bit concerned about both. I mean, mm. we can talk about why maybe the, the shoulder injury to a pitcher is is more pressing or, or is, is a little bit scarier. But with both these guys, it's not like these are their first injuries they've dealt with. It's kind of another injury added to the resume. Uh, DeLauder having issues with the foot that he broke. Um, during the college season, he didn't play much during his, his draft year. He didn't debut last summer. Now his pro debut is delayed. I I don't, I'm not obviously not a doctor, but I do think there is some concern about like having repeated injuries to the base of your kinetic chain as someone who is as big and physical as he is. Like, does that, does that weakness in the foot now make it more likely that he suffers future injuries in the lower half or, or does that just change how the operation works a little bit that, that leads to inconsistencies in, in his balance or there's just a lot that I feel like it could throw off that maybe it's easy to think that, Oh, he'll come back. The foot will get healthy and he'll be fine. But I mean, he's, I mean, both these players are, um, I mean, they have they have injury track records now. I don't know if they're you would call them like, uh, what's the tag for them? Injury prone. Injury prone. Or, yeah. I don't. I, you you probably could put that on both of them at this point if you wanted to, but we know that the the best predictor of future injuries is is just previous injuries. So I I would be concerned about both moving forward, and it is unfortunate because, like you had mentioned, Espino. I mean, I feel like entering the off season, I was thinking of him in in not maybe not the same, but very close to the, the tier of Grayson Rodriguez, Andrew Painter, Yuri Perez. Obviously, news about a shoulder injury just adds to the risk that he is able to reach his upside. Um, so we've moved him quite a bit back on our top 100. I don't know. It, it, it's certainly not good news. Uh, you want these guys to be healthy and to be logging innings is certainly for someone like Espino who just didn't throw that much a year ago, you want him to get those innings and shoulders, shoulders are extra scary. Um, when we're talking about pitchers, so not fun to be a Cleveland fan right now. If you, you've been looking forward to these prospects. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the, you know, if, if you're looking on the optimistic side, you can say, okay, 
Yeah, all right. You, you look at his career. He didn't throw in 2020. He was drafted in 2019, so he didn't pitch in 2020, obviously. Nobody did. And 2021, he, you know, he did go out. He made 20 starts in A ball through 91 and two-thirds innings. Uh, and then last year, you could say, yeah, he didn't pitch after April, after those first four starts, but it wasn't an arm injury, right? You'd re- It's not good that he had the knee injury that kept him out all year, but uh, it wasn't his elbow or, or his shoulder there. And then even now you could say, well, yeah, you know, the shoulder, there, there's an issue now with the shoulder, but he hasn't had surgery yet. So, you know, it's not like he's necessarily going to miss the entire season. Again, he could still come back and maybe he can put this behind him. But again, the the risk is, yeah, there's there's an issue now, both with there has been an issue with the knee. Now there's an issue with the shoulder. And like you said, hopefully this is not a precursor to an operation down the road that causes him to miss even more time because we know now that there is an issue with the shoulder and so much of being a starting pitcher in the big leagues is just having the durability to, you know, consistently stay healthy and and be able to handle, you know, 150 plus inning workload over a full season. It doesn't matter how hard the fastball is thrown. If if you're not on the mound to actually throw it, obviously, Uh, how concerned would you be with the foot injury with the ladder? For me, it's just getting to the point where we just haven't seen him in so long. I'm, I just want to see him against pro pitching and, and, and find out more about the bat, but it's just one delay after another with this foot injury. Are you? Would you be as concerned as maybe I would be initially about this potentially leading to other injuries, or what are your thoughts on, on the long-term impacts of this? Obviously, with understanding that neither of us are actual doctors, but... No, I think, yeah, I think everybody knows that, though, right? <laughs> we're, we're yeah. Not. <laughs> Was anybody under the misimpression that uh, it's just hard uh, to? I was actually a a surgeon. Any kind of valuable information here, other than this is a bummer, you know. (laughs) Well, it's. I mean, you know, you can understand the, you know, the injuries and how they affect baseball players. The you know the GMs and farm directors are not doctors either, but they have an understanding of you know the timetables for these players and just the history of what to look for when, when these injuries come up and with the louder, I mean, you mentioned before how you you think he's probably not a center fielder long-term. I would imagine this probably uh, even further reduces the probability of him staying in center field, but I'm I'm not really concerned long-term, obviously like selfishly, like you said, just it's, been so long since he's been on the field that I just, you know, I'm really excited about him as a player. So I really want to see him on the field and be able just to update our evaluations of him as a player. I think it can be, you know, one of the hidden things, especially about lower body injuries with players, you know, pitchers or position players, is it, it just makes it harder to work out and to train. Like if you're trying to squat or deadlifts or clean and you know your knee or your foot <laughs> is all banged up it's mm-hmm. it's really hard to do that so i think it can delay some of your strength progression or or your training in the gym 
but I'm not super concerned with like Chase DeLatter needing to get <laughs> any stronger. There's probably not any question, I think, on his on his raw power. Um, yeah. And it's not like he's some raw hitter either who's who really needs the at-bats. I think this is a guy with a pretty good idea of mm-hmm. of the strike zone and, and what he's doing at the plate. So I'm not too con- I'm not as concerned about case, it. I do think you could make a case that he, he does need at-bats against quality pitching, though. I mean... That's true. Depending on what you think of the competition he faced at James Madison, um, I mean, most people would put it at, at some... Some level below the the ACC and the SEC and the Big Power Five um, conferences. That was always the the knock from small school hitters is is how much do you trust their numbers since the competition isn't the same as the elite of college baseball um, in most years. Um, people who are are big Chase Lauder supporters would point to the Cape, but but I think that even with the Cape, they're there are a lot of really good pitchers who shut things down in the summer um, these days, and I think that's smart for them. Um, there are a lot of uh, issues with just throwing year-round and, and getting overuse injuries that, that you want to prevent. And obviously, as a pitcher especially, it's very tough to to just play over and over and over again. Um, but to Chase's credit, he did hit really well in the Cape with Wood. Um, and, and I guess that just gets to my point about wanting to see him in pro ball because there is a lot of evidence that, that he has great bat-to-ball skills and that he has a great approach in pairing those two things with the physical tools that he has uh, leads to a lot of excitement about his upside. And I just kind of want to feel more confident in, in who he is really as a hitter. Are those data points that we have from his, his time with James Madison? Um, is that the player we're going to see in the minor leagues? Uh, or is maybe the, are the numbers a little bit inflated? Um, that's what I was looking forward to seeing with the louder. He is one of the more exciting players in the 2022 class. I think he's exciting even in just the Guardian system because he's not a typical Cleveland player. There's a lot more. They're just he's, he's a lot toolsier than I think they they've been drafting on the hitting side lately. And and part of that is is because he got injured and because he fell outside of the top ten in part because of that injury. So you probably just don't see them choose um, toolsy players in general because Cleveland is, is not often picking at the very top of the draft and they have um, different different philosophies of the kind of hitters they like. But for a number of reasons, both of these are, are bummers. I mean, does this change how you view Cleveland's system at all? Just adding injury risk to two of their top prospects? Um, in some ways, I think this is maybe the, the best system to handle a few injuries like that because I think they're incredibly deep. But... Um, what are your thoughts on how this changes how you view Cleveland's system, if it does at all? No, I mean, I think they're still one of the best farm systems in baseball. Again, I, I don't really view DeLouder much differently now. It's more a Spino where, man, I, I hope it's not a long-term issue for him, but it definitely adds more risk, especially when he is or, again, was there their number one prospect um i don't know i mean how much just in general how much do how much do injuries or or, you know there hasn't been a surgery in in this case but we've seen you know we've seen college pitchers already some of the you know better arms for the upcoming draft and certainly what was it like a a couple years ago where it was like everybody (laughs) seemed like it was last year yeah it was last year where it seemed like every um, college pitcher was having i think it was every single pitcher that we had in the top 30 on our preseason outside of 
two of like the nine who were on the list dealt with injuries um, or didn't pitch in the spring. Uh, so it would be guys like this is including like Carson Wisenhunt didn't throw for his team. Reggie Crawford was injured before. I mean, literally every pitcher seemed to get injured. We already have a few injuries this spring. It's certainly not been as as heavily um, steered towards the, the first round arms crossing our fingers that the guys like Chase DeLauder and Paul Skeens and Hurston Waldrop and Rhett Louder stay healthy. Dolander, like, right? Yeah. Yeah, hopefully we don't. What did I say? You said yeah. DeLauder. Just yeah, Chase, Chase DeLauder on the brain, Sorry. yeah. <laughs> yeah, DeLauder on the brain. Hopefully Chase DeLauder. I'll, I'll get it. I'll get it eventually. <laughs> stays healthy. I, I'm as rusty as he was in his, uh, his debut with Tennessee last weekend. But, uh, no, hopefully those guys stay healthy. Um but yeah, like you said, this is this is the time when it happens. You're starting to see it on the pro side. Uh, a few guys on the college side um, have already been, like Jackson Wiggins, uh, right-hander at Arkansas, is a player who I wasn't able to see this past weekend at the college baseball showdown. Which we can talk about that. We can talk about some some farm systems here if you want, Ben. Which direction do you want to head from here? Um, well, I guess just when you either yourself or talking to teams in the draft. Or if, if we're looking, you know, at minor league prospects too, and then Dylan Lesko was another guy who had Tommy John surgery. How how much does that factor into your evaluation and projection for a pitcher? Well, I mean, it certainly adds to the risk. I think we bumped up Espino's risk factor uh, once we heard this news. It, it lowers you down boards. I think with the elite pitchers, we've had a pretty consistent um, downgrading of, of where players will fall. Players like JT Ginn, players like um, Jaden Hill, players like Dylan Lesko, when they're getting a Tommy John surgery, it's a pretty consistent down arrow feedback that, that if you're like top 10, it moves you down towards like the back of the first round in terms of where teams are, are lining those players up. Uh, Lesko was so good that he clearly didn't fall as far as that, but plenty of the guys that we had that got injured or even had injury issues and came back moved from first-round consideration down into second-round overpaid types. I think once you're getting into a range where you're outside of like these elite pitchers, um, the, the difference between you and any other prospect within like a 30- to 50-player spot movement on a board is – is so little that the actual numerical downgrading of, of where you're going to be increases. Um, but in terms of like tier, the tier fall off, I, I would imagine it's similar, but um, I mean, just from the team perspective, it's, it's significant. There have been some studies that show that the TJ recovery rates and the track record of pre-draft TJ, especially college pitchers um, pan out just as well as their non TJ counterparts. So I think it depends specifically what the injury is. It, it definitely seems like within the industry, no one's happy, obviously, with a TJ, but people are happier with a TJ or an elbow injury compared to a shoulder just right. based on the recovery rates um, in terms of stuff and, and, and how much you pitch after you come back from those injuries. And obviously, there are a ton of different injuries that you can have. There's a difference between a full Tommy John surgery and getting an elbow brace. Uh, like Adam Myers, a pitcher who had, had the elbow brace put in, um, and he was, he still got, I think a, a little over a million from the Braves, but again, he was a guy who had a chance to go in the first round. Um, but he got hurt very early on last spring. 
fell down the draft board in terms of where he selected, still got a decent amount of money. And I think if you look at how much money that these post-injury players are still signing for, it shows you that the team still value them quite a bit. There are just a lot more questions about what are you going to be as a pitcher, and I think maybe more than anything, just the lack of innings and the lack of clarity in terms of production uh, during a draft year is is as significant as as just the time that you're going to miss. Like just not being able to evaluate a player during the spring really, really matters, especially when the spring is is the time where you are lining up your boards and the heavy hitters from your organization, whether that's a general manager, whether that's a, a special assignment scout, whether that's the scouting director himself, like plenty of, of people in the organization are going to have good history and feel pretty confident about what a player is like before the injury, but it's a lot harder of a sell when you're trying to take a guy among the top five rounds where you're getting pretty significant money and the people calling the shots either haven't seen this player at all or they haven't seen him in six months. And for a pitcher at the amateur level, six months is a pretty significant amount of time uh, for just physical development, for pitch development, for player skill development. A lot can change uh, and teams can get pretty pretty gun shy about not seeing a player they're committing that much money to. So I, I think it just adds a bunch of risk. It adds a bunch of uncertainty. Um, yeah, it, it certainly doesn't help you. I, I think teams are, you're right. I mean, it, it does move players <clears throat> down the board, but I think teams are also still pretty charitable for pitchers who've had Tommy John surgery going into the draft and, I think are in general more comfortable than I would be taking pitchers who've had TJ. Um, you know, there, there are exceptions. Like I, I think Dylan Lesko is still a, you know, a super talented mm-hmm. prospect. Um, but, you know, I, I look at somebody like the giants last year, taking Reggie Crawford at the back of the first round. And yeah. he's a little different cause he, he, he was- does have some two way skills. He was taken with the thirtieth pick, signed for just about two point three million. Yeah, and it's he pitched like eight innings mm-hmm. at UConn and was yep. showed some really good stuff at the Cape, up to what ninety nine Fortin with triple digits, mm-hmm. pretty good slider in a very brief glimpse. I, I would have trouble with somebody like that where you already have a TJ in his medical record and a a very limited track record of, of innings. It would be hard for me to project somebody like that sticking as a, or feeling good about Mm -hmm. my projection that, Hey, this guy's going to be a a starting pitcher. It it seems like there's a lot of bullpen risk in somebody like that. And that's, you know, for the college guys, okay, maybe you have a little bit greater comfort level if they've had some track record of success and they have a Tommy John in their records. Uh, but I think especially the the younger you go, the more indicative it is of, hey, there's there might just be something going on in in this pitcher's, you know, in, in the pitcher's elbow that that we can't, see obviously with the naked eye or or he's doing something mechanically something the way his body works something the way his body moves that just puts a lot of stress 
on his arm and is going to create issues with him being able to stay durable enough to handle that starter's workload. Now, you know, later in the later rounds of the draft, sure. Obviously there's, there comes a point where there's trade-offs you have to make and, and the upside is, is worth it. Um, but I think especially when you're looking at the top of the draft and in the first round, or you're looking to mm-hmm. sign a guy for, you know, a bigger overslot bonus later. I I think the teams are a lot more comfortable with those players in, in general than I would be. Yeah. I think it's an interesting conversation because I, I think most, most teams are probably with you. I mean, it only takes one team to sign one of these guys. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that every team is, has the same, uh, risk aversion, like for instance, and also with a guy like Reggie Crawford, if you want to access that sort of arm talent, you just have to take on the risk, or else you're not getting that sort of arm talent. I mean, what other left-handed pitcher in the class was throwing 99 miles per hour with a slider like he threw? I mean, there are some guys who are close to that in terms of stuff, but there's not a lot of left-handers in most draft classes. Uh, in general, and then to pair a left-hander who's also showing the sort of high-octane velocity and pure stuff that you typically can only find from the elite right-handers, like I can understand wanting to roll the dice because if you're not taking Crawford in that range, you just don't get access to that talent at all. And I think there is something to like shooting for upside at some point. Like if you played it safe constantly you might wind up with a lot of players who just don't move the needle for your organization. So I would be fine with it. Um, depending on like the state of your org, how your player development has been. If you've missed consistently at the top of the draft for years. Okay. Maybe I can see a case where you, you don't want to do that. But I also just think that in the draft, it's, it's very easy to overrate the amount of talent that's in any given draft class. So if you want to shoot for the moon and you want to go for upside, sometimes it just has to come with that risk. I think it's, but I, I think the trade-off there is there are, there are players with, I think, similar, if not more upside than Crawford there and as, and as much value. And there's still significantly left-handers. Which... Just, just players overall on the board. You don't you don't have to necessarily take a a left-handed pitcher and I think there are I I think there are a lot of prospects just you know in every team's minor league system where you have a guy who you know throws really hard um and you know might have a good breaking ball too but is a reliever and that's just a lot of risk there and and I and I think it's you know like guys you know Gunnar Hoagland first round pick Jaden Hill Still got paid a lot of money, so I, I think teams, yeah, they the injuries do move these guys down the board, but teams are still taking them pretty high and spending a lot of money on them. And again, it's it's a, it's a case by case basis, yeah, and it, it depends on each individual situation. But I think there's just also a tendency, like I've, I think I've mentioned before, to kind of overrate. Or, or overvalue what you can see or what you have seen right in front of you and mm-hmm. underrate the risk of yeah. something that is not kind of just like staring you in the face that you can't see mm-hmm. right away. So I think it's just a, a bigger 
a bigger factor for, in, sure. for me. I think it's also pretty telling in just how organizations value arms. I mean, teams are teams desperately want quality pitching, and I would imagine every team in baseball is trying to develop those pitchers um, on their own, like from the draft, from the international market. Because I mean, look at the look at the money that pitchers are signing for on the free agent market this past off season. I mean, we're talking about Reggie Crawford costing so much in terms of acquisition costs, but. $2.3 million if he actually winds up being a solid pitcher really in any capacity at the major league level, that's going to look like a bargain in a few years. So I could see also teams just understanding that, yes, we know a lot of these pitchers aren't going to pan out. The attrition risk of pitching prospects uh, is quite high, uh, but it's either this or you're paying premium prices on the free agent market and no no ownership in baseball, no front office in baseball wants to really build their rotation on the free agent market because of how much how much money that's going to cost you and how much it's going to limit you um, to build out your team in other areas. So I guess <laughs> the 2022 draft, just looking back at it for the number of injuries and then still seeing all of these bonuses just really highlights how valuable premium arms are in the draft and and how valuable those sorts of players are for teams because it's incredibly hard it's probably harder to find an ace for your team than any other position in baseball right and so it's just tough to find those guys and at some point you got to take a take a risk to get them in my mind tell me about some tell me about some healthy players talk to me about Braden Taylor Dude, he, yeah. you were at the college baseball showdown last weekend. That yeah. looked like it was full of talent. It was full of talent. And Braden Taylor is, is a, a Ben Badler player, if there ever was one. I feel like he has one of the most professional approaches that I've seen. I think the name that I talked about constantly in terms of like the best amateur approach that I've seen is Corbin Carroll. I feel like Braden Taylor has entered that tier just in terms of constantly being in control of at bats having an an outstanding eye at the plate it looks like pretty terrific pitch recognition but but he's not i i think looking at his walk rates over his career and the chase rates you could assume that taylor would just be a passive sort of hitter who's going up there looking to walk uh, swinging when he gets like into two strike counts and these two but he was pretty aggressive actually in good hitting counts he got ahead in a number of counts and fired off really impressive A swings. I think he has bat speed. I think the contact is solid. There was some swing and miss, but I would say the swing and miss was was good swing and miss. He was like swinging over a 3-1 changeup in a fastball count and looking to do damage. Um, and then when he got into two strike accounts, he made an approach and would make a little bit more, or he would change his approach, make a little bit more contact. But yeah, he was outstanding. He went seven for 12 this weekend, homer to the pull side, doubled five walks to three strikeouts and all three of those strikeouts I believe came on the first day and I never felt like he was having a disappointing day even with those three strikeouts one of the calls was probably like he probably identified the pitch as a ball better than the umpire did got rung up two of the other strikeouts um, were still solid at bats and he looks like a fine defender at the corner so Taylor was the the top prospect at this event like heading heading into it who is um, Arkansas, Missouri, Oklahoma State, Texas, Texas Christian, and Vanderbilt were the teams who were at the college baseball showdown. Uh, and he certainly lived up to kind of the expectations that I had going in into the event for him. 
just a really, really polished hitter. I mean, I, th- I think he has to have one of the best, or, or if not the best, batting eyes in, in this draft class. Yeah, TCU third baseman. We have him right at the back of our top 10 on our 2023 draft rankings. And mm-hmm. just watching him play last summer on the USA Collegiate national team, obviously Dylan Cruz stood out. We talked about how much I love Jacob Wilson from that team. And, you know, Jacob Gonzalez was there too. And we have Jacob Gonzalez, number three, Mississippi shortstop on our board. And he also off to a nice start too. Um, But I mean, man, the guy, I I came away just last summer a little bit more impressed with Taylor. You know, you you give Gonzalez the edge right now. He's, He's a shortstop, at least for now. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Taylor's a third baseman. I, I think Taylor will stick at third base. Yeah. Um, but like you said, just a very, very polished hitter, very mature approach, good swing. Really love the swing. I think it's it's a swing that that can do damage, hit for line drives, use the entire field. I just think it's there's nothing mechanically that makes me question it and i don't think that's the same for for jacob gonzalez he has a very unorthodox swing like Mm -hmm. even while i didn't see him in person this weekend but i've seen him in person with college national team i watched a lot of his video from this weekend and i really wonder about his his outer third approach like there are a lot of swings and in college he's he's done plenty of damage on the outer third just by pulling balls to the pull side but i really wonder at the next level when he's challenged with better stuff on the outer third with quality breaking balls in the outer third there are a lot of times where he's really leak i don't know if it's leaking out as a proper terminology but his lower half is fully going to the pull side he gets out in front early he'll get under some balls in the outer half and in some of the hits that he's gotten to the opposite field are, are kind of just very softly slapped the other way and so I could easily see some teams like being a little iffy on his swing just because it, it doesn't look like a, a typical swing. And and I've talked before on this podcast how at the end of the day, I really don't think it matters how you do it. If you can hit for an average, if you can hit for power, if you can get on base. And Jeff Gonzalez has done all of those things. Uh, but I do think in terms of like projecting the swing at the next level, it wouldn't shock me at all if most teams were a lot more comfortable with Braden Taylor's. And he ran pretty well at this event, too. Like I think the criticism with Taylor is probably going to be that like, what is the impact you're getting with this player? Like he he feels like a very well-rounded player in all phases. But if you're talking about a top ten player, teams really want to get some impact. And so how much do you believe in that at the next level? Um, it seems yeah. like it seemed like that was ticking up. I mean, obviously you were there. It seems like he was hitting the ball harder though. This, he barreled this up weekend. everything. Like he, he, he found the barrel. I, I think in terms of like opposite field power, how that's going to play, you could probably still have some questions. The home run he hit was uh, a pretty clear no doubter to the pull side, but pull side power in college with aluminum bats, I could see how you're maybe still you could be a little pessimistic on on what it's going to be like with a wood bat at the next level. But I mean, we've talked about it before. Power has been so hard to project depending on how the ball plays. I think he has certainly average power or better. It's just a question of like. He's solidly in the top 10 range right now. How much higher he pushes probably depends on uh, the other players at the top of the board if anyone kind of struggles. And then again, like if he's a third baseman, you probably think he's going to stick there. I think he moves around well enough to probably be able to play second. Like he turned in a, mm. an above average or, or plus runtime to first. That was a little bit quicker than I was expecting him to be. 
Um, and so if, if you, if you're definitely playing him at third, that's a position where you typically trying to get some impact. Um, but this is all nitpicking a player who I think is, is quite good. Like I would be very happy with him if I was picking in the top 10 and I would, if I'm picking at seven or eight saying he's on the board, I would be, I would be pretty happy with that. Well, and that's where I'm wondering just, you know, from a scouting perspective, like you said, he's a very well-rounded player who checks a lot of boxes that you're looking for. And if he does show more power and he does show more impact this year now if you're looking at it through a a traditional scouting lens uh, there's a lot to like here the from looking at the performance at least the past two years and very early in the season we'll wait to be determined on how the rest of the season plays out but i'm going to assume he's going to have a really good year the rest of the season especially it's, it's, it's the college performing bats seem like they have a tendency to move up the draft, especially as draft day gets closer. Uh, I mean, he, could he be a guy who potentially could be going somewhere in the top five? I mean, I'm, again, I'm looking at the guys ahead, like Paul Skeens, mm-hmm. LSU two-way guy right ahead of him who's like <laughs> didn't didn't hurt his stock this weekend by by any means so like you said maybe some of the the guys ahead of him would need to falter in some way but yeah. what do, do you think he could potentially jump into that mix and obviously it depends too on how teams maneuver their for sure their bonus pool money yeah yeah i guess if we can kind of separate the the way teams manipulate the pool and and basically just think of it in terms of like how teams would line them up on talent i I think there's a path it could be a little tight just because guys like like dylan cruz i i really don't see him going anywhere unless something terrible happens He, he looked great this weekend the swing looks good um there's a little bit of a mechanical change that that maybe is interesting maybe is not interesting with him that happened this weekend or that that I noticed this weekend. I'm sure he was working on it in the preseason. Dolander, if he's the pitcher we expect him to be, which again, big questions for pitchers. We've we've seen plenty of pitchers move down boards in the past. Wyatt Langford is another one who feels like pretty pretty safe to stay up top, given his track record as a hitter, the tools that he has. I, I feel like when you're comparing Taylor to a Cruz or a Langford or Gonzalez or even like Max Clark and Walker Jenkins, teams are going to like the the impact that you get with those players quite a bit more than Taylor. I think how much, how much more does like the polished pure hitting ability that Taylor provides balance that out is an interesting question to have. But Paul Skeens is really the guy who probably is already in that top five range now. And is, as long as he's throwing the same stuff he threw last week, the next few weeks in our next update, it would be very surprising to me if, if Paul Skeens wasn't, up inside the top five and once you get him up there it's looking pretty crowded like there's not an obvious player to move down in my mind um and i even had some conversations from people who would know this past weekend that it wouldn't be shocking if paul Skeens jumped over chase dolander now obviously it's one week we're not going to uh get too crazy over literally one performance uh, and a lot can certainly change in the future um but we saw a few years ago, Brady Singer was the consensus top pitching prospect in the 2018 class. Uh, and about halfway through the season, Casey Mize jumped up and was pretty much the consensus top guy. And the stuff Paul Skeens was showing this weekend looked filthy. Again, I didn't see it in person. I just saw the video. But, man, he looked like a top five pick for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, he was holding upper 90s velocity deep into his start. I mean, in 90-plus pitches. Like 96-99 into the fifth inning. The, the arm action looked a little bit easier than it did last summer. It looked like a little bit less effort than, than I saw over the summer. It was never like a super effortful delivery, but it just looked so easy. The slider movement looked like it was pretty significantly improved from when I saw him with, with Team USA. Um, yeah, he is he's a monster. I don't I mean he's he's better than any pitching prospect we had a year ago at this time at, at the college level. I'm curious in a few weeks like how we're going to be viewing this top half of the first round on the college pitching side compared to recent years. Um, because again, Casey Mize is, is the best one that I've covered at the college level. Probably I'm trying to think how, how Casey Mize would rank with like a Jack. Le- I mean, when Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker were at the top of the class in 2021, I believe that's the right draft. You're right for those guys, their first draft. Mm-hmm. Kumar Rocker confuses it a little cause he was twice, but yeah, when, when they were the top pitching prospects, everyone kind of was just like, yeah, we don't have any front of the rotation pitching prospects here. Most people viewed Leiter and Rocker as like solid middle of the rotation arms. But I think with Dolander and Skeens, we're looking at a lot of upside here. Uh, I'm excited to see that. And hopefully they match up in a few weeks. That's going to be a fantastic game when, when Tennessee heads down to LSU. I really hope they stay healthy and we can get a Dolander-Skeens matchup. That's going to be awesome. Yeah, I mean, looking at our top, just like our top nine prospects down to Braden Taylor at number nine, if, again, you know, guys can get hurt, things can change, but if I'm, you know, obviously I'd, you know, love to be Pittsburgh picking number one, but Oakland A's picking six, Reds at seven, Royals at eight, Rockies at nine, even even if even though you don't have a top five pick, some of those teams are going to get a top five caliber type talent i think yeah just and and i'm really high in this draft i think i'm even higher on this draft than just the feedback we've been getting from the industry in terms of how they graded it out on our preseason ballot because a lot of the guys we're talking about here are pitchers and the fact i I feel like the last few years what you've been missing at the very top of the draft are just elite pitching prospects the fact that we have a couple of those this year it seems like on top of up the middle college hitters with tools up the middle high school hitters with tools with max clark and walker jenkins i mean aiden miller too i I don't want to sleep on him too much it's not like a classic shortstop prospect which teams love on the high school side with tools but he's a really good hitter and can probably stick on the left side of the infield and i think the depth too once we get into some of the guys further down the board on the college side I'm just very high on the college shortstops in this class. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I like this class a lot, basically. And this weekend didn't really dull that for me at all. Although, I am still wondering what teams are going to do with Enrique Bradfield. He's We've talked about his profile being odd. He didn't have a great weekend, which it's just three games. Um, but it's it's a very unusual swing with with limited power. I, yeah, I Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt good. center fielder, first round Sorry, range on our board right now. What, what did you, what did you see from him? I, I mean, it's it, it just sounds like performance wise, he just didn't have a a yeah, great he didn't drive great the weekend, ball but. very hard. There were a lot of like flyouts, early in counts where he didn't square up pitches. 
he rolled over on a few ground balls and it wasn't even the ground balls where he turns in like competitive run times down the line um, and just turns uh, a weekly hit ball into an infield single went one for 11 overall a couple walks three strikeouts he did hit one ball hard uh, squared out the middle line drive uh, but for the most part, it was just kind of inconsistent contact. Um, I thought it w- there weren't the best swings early on in counts. There were a few called strike threes that I thought were were pretty competitive pitches that I would want to see him maybe take a take a hack and and be a little bit more competitive. Um, but again, like he was still impacting the game defensively. I expected to see a, a dynamite center fielder, and he was that. He didn't have a ton of of tough chances I would say but he showed an ability to go back in the gaps really easily and and convert deep fly balls into outs without really sweating at all when he was on base he stole immediately tagged up from second on a fairly routine ball to left field that I feel like most players uh, would at least have to think twice about tagging up and for him it was it was never really a question so there are things that he's going to do for a baseball team even if the hits aren't falling but in terms of the swing itself and the power that he's going to have, I don't know. I've talked to some scouts who don't view him as a top 10 player and view him more of like a back of the first. And I'm just curious to see like how, if there will be any sort of consensus formed around Bradfield, because he does seem like a polarizing type of prospect um, just because of the, the tools that he has and the swing and the lack of power I mean, some people seem a lot higher on that than others. I don't know. Hmm. It wasn't the best look this weekend, but he does have a good track record of hitting and performing at Vanderbilt. But he's also like the guy on that Vanderbilt team now this year. He's There's no Spencer Jones in the lineup. Although I think it's a solid lineup still, but there's like no other player that you're really focusing on offensively. So it'll be interesting to see how he kind of handles that um, this year. Who Who else popped for you either there or just in general? this this weekend the maybe the most impressive other outing uh, oh rock regio i think i want to mention just because this is all right yeah badler player i mean he's listed i think we have him listed at five foot nine and it wouldn't shock me if he was not fully five foot nine um but he was just mr barrel machine this weekend that's him he he had everything hard um hit I don't know what what he actually. I have the triple slash line, but a triple slash for three games is is deceiving. Three sixty four, four sixty two. What's great about Reggio is he is a an absolute firebrand of a player in college baseball, and the Arkansas fans absolutely detest him because last, <laughs> last year, if you guys were at this game or watched this game, um, or you just want to look up clips. Anytime he steps to the plate or is announced or anything happens with Reggio, everyone is up and booing him loudly and aggressively. Last year in the College World Series, he homered a couple times against Arkansas. The first time he did this little, um, I asked some some Arkansas fans about it at the game because I was sitting around a bunch of them. Their, their fans are, are great in terms of the amount of people who travel and support the team. Um, but I was like, why do you guys hate Reggio so much? And they're like... Oh, he he was prancing around the bases at the College World Series after he homered. He's just not a not a good kid. We don't like him. <laughs> I was like, oh man! And he pulls up the video of uh, Rock Regio's homer, and he he does this prancing movement around like when he's rounding third. And it was so funny because the next, I think it was either the same series or very shortly after, he hits another home run. And because he had been criticized and booed because he pranced, the next time he, like, full-on sprinted around the bases, and as he's rounding third, he's, like, waving to the crowd, like, 
like give me more of the 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 booing uh but it really seems like he lives in that environment and it doesn't phase him at all he's strong he's like a shorter guy but he is he's very strong the power to the pull side was apparent in batting practice um i don't think he's going to do much for you defensively but he can really hit man and that was his mo as a high school player he always he always hit in high school and teams kind of wanted to see him prove it in college because the defensive profile was so limited, um, because the the secondary tools weren't great. Uh, but man, it was it was a lot of barrels. So I was impressed with that. I'm curious. We have him right now, like in the 150 to 200 range on our board. I'm curious how much higher he's going to push with a strong season because I do think there's some impact there as well as just good pure hitting ability. Yeah. Oh, I mean, what Oklahoma State second baseman? If he continues to be a, a college performer. Those guys can go in the top few rounds. I, I agree with what you said on him, especially offensively. Um, you know, unsigned Brewers draft pick out of high school. Just a really good feel for the barrel. Really like the way his swing works. Very short arm, short level, uh, short level levers. Excuse me. Um, just very direct, compact path to the baseball. It's just a lot of contact, and like you said, he's. He's strong, too. It's not mm-hmm. like he's a slap hitter, so I guess I'll be looking for him to, to hit the gritty next time he crosses <laughs> the plate against Arkansas. Yeah, I feel like he's got to be one of those must-watch college players. Anytime you, you see him do something well, he's going to um, really get the Oklahoma State fans fired up and really piss off whatever other team he's he's performing against. So he's he's great for college baseball, I think. Um, there, there was a little bit of swing and miss against spin that, that was a bit concerning. There were, there were a few times where he just was taking monster hacks versus spin. I don't think there's a, a strong track record just going back and looking at his, his year in 2022 against spin, but that would be one area where I kind of am looking at moving forward this spring. Like, like, is it a huge weakness to spin overall, or was it just a, a few ABs that I saw, uh, this weekend where, where he didn't look the greatest on spin, but overall really impressed with, with the bat there. Another performance that was pretty eye-opening for me was Hagen Smith, who's a left-handed pitcher at Arkansas. He was the the Friday night starter for that team against Texas. Um, so one of the first pitchers that I saw at this event, he's class of 2024, by the way, not a 23 class. The stuff that he was throwing was much better than I was expecting to see. I was expecting low 90s and solid control, and he didn't throw anything slower than 94 for four innings and had a hard slider with power that I thought looked like a plus offering at times and dominated. Um, I'm trying to see if I have his line here. Um, I don't have the actual results, but he was probably the most impressive starter that I saw. Okay, yeah, five innings, one hit, one run, struck out eight, walked two. I mean, he he was a, a great pitcher out of high school. He was a player who had Tommy John surgery early on. I don't think he threw on the showcase circuit, but then he had something like seven no-hitters against bad Texas competition and, and wowed a bunch of people with that. But it was like the competition was so bad, team, teams really wondered, like, okay, is, is he this good or is he just – kind of dominating players that are are about to be done with baseball in a few months. And after throwing, I think it was low 90s a year ago, um, the stuff looked outstanding 
in this outing. So he's he's certainly a, a player who I would imagine is trending up um, on our underclass board right now. We have him in the top thirty on our twenty twenty four list, but he's going to probably push push ahead of a few arms uh, in front of him after that outing. Yeah, we came out with our 2024 draft rankings, the top 100 for the preseason list right before, obviously, the the weekend. And like you said, last year he was topping out at 95, and then he comes out here and he's basically sitting I mean, he averaged <laughs> at 95. In the start, yeah. And it's like, it was... ooh, all right, good, good, good to know. We should move him up pretty quick. Yeah, and he came out, and it. But there's a little bit of effort. There's a little bit of herky jerky actions. There's some head whack. Um, but he repeated the slot well, and, and I kind of expected, after we saw that velo initially, I think he touched 97 in the first. I was like, oh, wow, he's he's really geared up. I really expected him to come out in the second inning, and it to be a few ticks lower, because that happens often, especially early on in the season. You come out, and you're amped up. You're ready to go. It's a big crowd. It's a great environment. There are a ton of scouts there. The adrenaline's pumping. Um, and, and so the velocity peaks and then and then falls down for the rest of your outing. But, man, he held it. He held it for four of the five. I think the the fifth inning, it was mostly lower 90s. Um, but, yeah, that was a really impressive outing. Another arm and another underclassman who who jumped out to me was Sam Horn. He was ranked number 106 in the 2022 draft out of high school and was a player who got Bubba Chandler comparisons because he's a two-way guy, um, football and baseball commit to Missouri, uh, obviously got to school, but has a great body, six foot four, 217 pounds. The arm is super lively. He was throwing 93, 96, touch 97 a few times. Again, I thought he had a plus breaking ball, lower 80s pitch with a lot of spin, good sweeping action. The control with him wasn't as good, and I think there are some things he could do in his delivery to clean up the direction a little bit and repeat the l- release point a little bit more consistently. But in terms of just loud stuff and good performance from a true freshman in a, a pretty big environment was was really cool to see. Um, he pitched against TCU on Sunday in like a for, leverage. For Missouri. For Missouri, yeah, yeah for Missouri, sorry. Um, and it was a game Missouri won 9-8. And, and so his innings, it wasn't like he was was pitching in a blowout. Um, he was really impressive and definitely a name to watch for, for 2025. Any other big draft movers from the first week of the season? Obviously, I mean, it sounds like, like you said, Skeens, Taylor, not that they were yeah. <laughs> uh, lightly regarded or anything coming in, but it sounds like they were kind of the the talk yeah. of everything. But I don't know they if They were as else. advertised. It really feels like Skeens was kind of the big name. I mean, uh, me and Peter Flaherty put together a post on 20 college baseball standouts on that list, there are a lot of um, draft names. There are some names who are, are maybe not uh, draft prospects to the same level. We tried to make it just performance-based. So there are a lot of names that people will recognize, including Skeens, um, Nick Kurtz, uh, first baseman at Wake Forest, who we ranked pretty highly on that 2024 list. He had a monster weekend, homered four times for Wake Forest. Um, a few other names here, Kyle Teal. With Virginia, catcher for Virginia in the 2023 class, he had a, a pretty exceptional offensive showing for what was an awesome Virginia offense. Um, there are a bunch of other names on this list. Malcolm Moore is another true freshman who had a loud weekend, three home runs with Stanford. 
we really loved his bat out of high school. And it's good to see him kind of directly translating that to college. 24 draft class with him. 24 draft class. Yeah, yeah he'll be draft eligible um, sophomore next year. I'm trying to think if there are any other names worth mentioning. Colton Ledbetter at uh, Mississippi State. He looked Sounds good. Like he had a, some power, big power this weekend. Yeah, he looked good. I'm just kind of scanning down. Tommy Troy sounds like he had a good weekend. I haven't watched much video of that, but I know Peter was telling me that he looked really good with the bat. Um, the one interesting one is Maui Ahuna not playing with Tennessee. Some eligibility issues um, coming up with, with him transferring from Kansas. I hope that gets resolved quickly because not only does Tennessee really need him, um, but we have him as a first-round talent at the moment. And I love the swing, and I was really excited to see how that translated to the SEC. So that's a name to maybe just monitor. Um, in terms of any other movers, no one that I can think of initially, I would say, I think we've hit on, on most of the big ones. Um, and it just depends on like how many more of these players from the showdown you want to get into. I, I wasn't that thrilled with Marcus Brown, I would say at Oklahoma state, their shortstop. We, we had dropped him down our list a little bit prior to the season starting, which I, I feel good about after this there's just not a lot of impact in the bat i don't i don't know how much like pure hitter there is here he's a solid defensive shortstop made a few nice plays but even the hands i, I maybe i was like coming in with my expectations too high given that he won like the best defensive infielder in the cape last summer but um i think there is like a cluster of solid college shortstops in the range that he's in that just have offensive impact questions uh and and i have probably more questions about his bat now than prior to this weekend so he, he'll be a name that i'm curious to see how the how the bat progresses this spring mm -hmm. we got the uh top 30s now on our site too we've got obviously post our top 10s first and then if you have the prospect handbook already or especially the digital handbook you've got the top 30s for every team so we're expanding those online if you're a ba subscriber you've got all of our top 30s now except for one more division to come still on monday um but it's you you, you definitely get a sense reading through it for which teams are are deeper <laughs> than others especially uh, you know for us as we're writing it sometimes you get to like 15 16 and you're like i don't know if there's <laughs> how, about, how about number five for the braves ben <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh that would definitely not be a deep system that was a pretty easy we're coming out with our farm system ranking soon i will play spoiler here they will pretty clearly be number 30 well i think anyone so if you have gotten a prospect handbook, I know a lot of people have gotten those. It'll, it'll be an update from what's in the prospect handbook, correct? Based on the international yeah. markets. Um, international signings. There's some transactions yes. since then. Injuries, too. Um, so some, yeah, so there'll be some tweaks be, from, from there. I don't think it'll be too much of a spoiler for, for us to say that the Braves are going to be 30, right? Like, Well, they were 30, and then they traded away prospects. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it is interesting thinking about depth, and, and especially maybe if we just throw out the Braves from this conversation because we just they just don't have a great farm system right now. So the fact that they also don't have any depth that that kind of comes with the territory of ranking thirty. I don't know if there's ever been a team that's ranked number thirty 
on the farm system rankings where we were like, you know what? The depth here is interesting. That, that seems like a, an, an impossible thing to happen. But in terms of maybe good teams who don't have a ton of depth or maybe are, are just extra top heavy, um, or teams who you're really impressed with their depth. I think it's an interesting conversation to have. We both have a few teams listed here. We both have the guardians, um, as one of the teams who, who is notable because of the depth. I don't think that was surprising at all. I remember reading them initially and it was just like good prospect after good prospect after good prospect all the way down. Um, but yeah, where do you want to start this conversation, Ben? You want to talk about good depth teams, bad depth teams? Yeah, I, I like the depth of the the Guardians. It's mm-hmm. like you said, even guys who are in that 16 to 30 range for them who in a lot of other systems would be candidates to be, you know, somewhere in that 10 to 10 to 15 range mm-hmm. for a lot of other clubs. And we were trying to figure out where to slot in the 2023 international signings it's like well she like you know they signed Welbin Francisco who who I like quite a bit I mean smaller guy but I think he's got some good feel for hitting and it's like well who do you put him ahead of even some of these guys who are in the 20s in the back of their system are are really good it's 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 depth both from from the draft and international signings. I think internationally is where you yeah. can really separate yourself with depth. Uh, every every team more or less has the ability to spend just as much money as every other club. I mean, it's some small differences now in in what the bonus pools are, but mm-hmm. any team can go out and sign, you know, whoever they think is the best player available, pretty much. Um, so there, there, there's no limitations financially mm-hmm. for, for the most part internationally. And you can, if you have a good international scouting staff, you can, you can hit on a lot of depth players, guys who aren't even necessarily the, the big, big money guys mm-hmm. who can turn into pretty good prospects. And I think you can certainly see that throughout the, the guardian system. How, a few things that I wanted to mention. First, I I kind of did a bit of a proxy to to account for depth. I went through all of our teams uh, and looked for the 35 score grade for each prospect handbook team. So the way we do our BA grades, it's it's the uh, the expected role that they're going to have, and then that comes with a risk factor that that will kind of give you an adjusted grade where you can see where teams line up. So I looked for the 35 line for every organization. And so that would mean basically an extreme risk to be a 50 or less than a 50 in terms of overall role. So I use that as as sort of a proxy for figuring out depth of systems where the, where the guardians 35 line starts is at prospect 22, which is far and away the best. Uh, of any team that we have the next best is a group of teams tied at 17 and just for some context at the opposite end of the spectrum the three teams at the bottom the braves uh, that line starts at prospect number four the astros that starts at prospect number eight and the phillies that starts at prospect number seven Um, so i think that that is a, a decent way to quantify depth and it's kind of shocking that it's all the way down at 22 for the guardians. So, 
I mean, just like from a mathematical standpoint, that means we've got 19 players essentially that would have a case to be top five in the Brave system, which is insane. <laughs> also, I wanted to ask, how do you think the the minor league shuffle of teams and removing teams, do you think it impacts a team like the Guardians more than others? Because where are they playing? They're they also a team that consistently has pretty large international classes, right? It seems like they would be a team that benefits from having additional complex league teams. Um, I don't know if their class is necessarily larger than, than most teams. Um, they, I think, I think they just have signed a lot of good players (laughs) and that, that sticks out. Um, so I think that might be it, but I don't see how, I don't see why they would be. At a at a dis, you're saying they might be at a disadvantage relative to other clubs because they sign. Yeah, I was wondering if if they signed such a quantity of internet because it seemed and I and I could just be wrong here, but it seemed like they spread around their international money a little bit more and get like larger classes in terms of number of players compared to like really going in on one of the high bonus kids and using most of their pool up on a, a few top players, uh, and then just looking at it the depth of their system, I just wondered as, as we were talking about this, if there would be a team that maybe would be able to take advantage of a few extra minor league teams more than some others here. Cause it yeah. just seems like the guardians consistently do a really good job with player development. Um, although I guess every team theoretically should be able to benefit from, from adding a few lower level teams. Yeah. I mean, if you have, I mean, if you have multiple Dominican summer league teams, I think that gives you an advantage, just gives you, more roster spots, more more playing time for more players, more opportunities to get lucky um, with with your lower bonus players. I mean, they're 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 not a team you know that would or that has gone out and signed you know an Ethan Salas for uh, you know putting almost all their bonus pool money into one player like that or or a Jason Dominguez or. Um, you know, a Robert Poussin, somebody like that. But but even a lot of teams that are doing that, they're still signing a lot of players for lower bonus yeah. um, money. You know, a lot of ten thousand dollars signings that just don't get quite as much uh, attention or or press that way. Gotcha. What other teams do you think uh, impress you in terms of depth? Any any teams that maybe rank a little bit lower than the Guardians who you found yourself being kind of intrigued by by the quality of their depth? Yeah, I guess in terms of surprises to me, the, the Pirates' depth was pretty intriguing to me. I mean, they have guys, you know, even toward the back of their top 30, like Alani White Jr., who, who, you know, he was hurt last year, was a high draft pick for him in 2021 coming out of high school who I think is still pretty intriguing um they have you know they they still have and they have good arms down to or at least some some intriguing you know depth type arms into the you know toward the 20s in their system uh, or at least the back half of the teens guys like Hunter mm-hmm. Barco Michael Kennedy uh, a couple lefties you know adding another big international signing this year um in Shim out of out of uh, 
Korea. So um, there's some there's some yeah, pretty Hunter Marco ranking 17 here is pretty pretty good for the system. I, I like most of the arms in the 10 to 20 range here. Like yeah, Thomas I don't Alameda, Thomas Harrington, Kyle Nicholas, Barco, Michael Kennedy. You saw him quite a bit out of high school. Even down to Carmen Majinski. I'm not fully up to date on what Carmen Majinski has done, but he was fascinating out of the draft. So I like a lot of the arms that are here. Yeah, and I don't even really necessarily love the top, you know, top, very top of the system. I mean, I do love Tamar Johnson. Tamar Johnson fan. I love I love Tamar. Andy Rodriguez. We've talked about lower on, uh, you know, like Nick Gonzalez and um, you know, and Henry Davis compared to. Yeah. Maybe consensus, or you know, maybe we maybe we did ding Gonzalez <laughs> enough this time, but mm-hmm. um, but I do think there's you know still like a second wave of guys beyond yeah. them that's that's still pretty solid. No, I agree. Yeah, I like I like Luis Ortiz and Quinn Priester quite a bit. Bubba Chandler's exciting. I'm probably with you on on Henry Davis. Um, yeah, Nick Gonzalez. I think we've dinged him appropriately, uh, but there are a lot of players that you could you could easily look up in a few years and be like, wow. This is another good player from the Pirate system. Thomas Harrington is obviously a, a personal favorite from me. The team that I was really excited about in terms of depth, and maybe it's less surprising because I think JJ's written about it quite a bit, um, just with the moves they've made, it's it's really no surprise to see the amount of quality players they have, and that's the Reds. Um, and, and for the Pirates, by the way, their 35 line started at player 15. For the Reds, their 35 line starts at player 16. So kind of... Um, towards the top in terms of like quantity of depth, how, how I'm basically describing it right here. They're one of the top teams, uh, again, through their 10 to 20 range. There are a lot of players that are exciting to me and like hearing how JJ talked about this list and making it and, and saying like he could get into the forties and still be talking about like interesting players. Not that they would be like everyday profiles, but he seemed to rave about the fact that he could just keep going and keep going. And typically I would say that falls off once you get close to 30 and it's sometimes can be painful to try to even get to 30 for, for some systems. But the reds I think have a ton of really exciting infielders, which I love a lot of short stops, a few really exciting third baseman. Cam Collier obviously is a, a player we love Spencer steer, Sal Stewart, I like a lot. Um, Matt McLean, I don't know. People probably have polarizing thoughts on McLean, but I think he's a solid player across the board. Um, Jay Allen is an exciting athlete. Michael Ciani, again, an exciting athlete. I don't know how much you're going to get out of the bat, but he ranks 18 in this system, which I think is pretty solid. Um, but I like a lot of the depth in this system as well. I mean, Austin Hendrick and Reese Hines ranking basically like outside of the 30 here. I feel like is a, a pretty good sign for your system. Yeah, I like the the top of their system, uh, particularly you know with Ellie De La Cruz, Cam Collier, Noel V. Marte. Like those guys quite a bit. I I don't know. I I feel like it falls off a li- like pretty steeply from there after mm-hmm. those guys. I mean, some it of the guys seem to be a pretty clear tear break. I would agree with you there. Yeah, some of the guys after that. It, falls off pretty sharply i think but at the same time especially going back to the international players 
at the lower levels, they do have pretty interesting array of guys who could be breakout type guys, whether it's Carlos Jorge, uh, Ariel Almonte, the outfielder, Leonardo Balcazar, uh, trading for Victor Acosta from the Padres. Uh, you know, Yerling Confidant is, is still an intriguing guy. Um, they do have a bunch, and, you know, Al, adding Alfredo Duno now, the catcher from Venezuela, who they signed January 15th or, or just after January 15th this year. So there, there is an array of, of kind of breakout type yeah. guys that they've signed out of uh, or signed or traded for from Latin America in that system. And they just have a lot of depth of up the middle players who, again, depending on how the next year or two goes in, in terms of player development, we could be looking at a lot of players that we feel a lot more confident in. I think you're right that like once you get past maybe Cam Collier or Christian Encarnacio Strand, there's a, a, a clear tier jump into these players who are all kind of more muddled and you don't, I don't think you can feel super confident in them having like an impact regular role, but if a few of them turn and, and there's a lot, I feel like that, that could turn into those sorts of players. I just feel like the number of solid prospects that you have here is, is pretty quality. Like, and also this could be to where most teams that I'm looking at here, I'm like, Oh, the depth is really good because I just finished doing a brave <laughs> list that falls off quickly and also doesn't have bats. So I see a lot of hitters who are playing shortstop and third base and second base and center field. Uh, that excites me a little bit. Yeah. On the other end, though, like if you look at teams that surprised you the other way for not having a, a great farm system, mm-hmm. the one that really jumps out to me is Oakland's. Yeah, I'm curious about this conversation because if you look at the 35 line for Oakland, it's at 17, which would tie them for the second best with the Cubs, the Giants, and Rangers in terms of where the 35 line falls. And I do think that the A's don't have nearly as good a system as they should have considering the players they've traded away. But I actually think I'm higher on their like depth than you are. I think they have a lot of interesting athletes but i also feel like it could be a lot of player types that you are just much lower on like there are a lot of risky profiles here there are a lot of players that like are similar similar to players that the a's have whiffed on before in the draft there are not a lot of sure things there are a lot of extreme risk players with tools at the lower levels who might not hit but i i think i'm probably a little higher on the depth than you are and there are a lot of pitching prospects as well who have been more successful in other organizations that maybe they can still kind of figure things out. But yeah, I'm curious as to why you're low on this one. Cause I'm, I think I'm higher on them than you are. I think they should have one of the best farm systems in baseball, I agree but with you there. they don't. <laughs> and if, and if you go back and you look from 2016 to 2018, they had a top 10 pick in the draft three years in a row, 2016, they draft AJ puck sixth overall. He's 27, coming off a solid year as a reliever. Uh, You know, 2017, six overall again. They take Austin Beck. The next year, nine overall, Kyler Murray. So three top 10 overall picks, two huge whiffs where they get nothing, and a third where, you know, that's A.J. Puck. It's just not the outcome that you're looking for from 
the sixth overall pick in the draft. And their top pick since then, you know, Logan Davidson, Tyler Soderstrom, that's, that's been a great pick. And then Max Muncy, 21, Daniel Susak last year. And then you look at their farm system overall, and they have one prospect in the top 100, and there's really nobody beyond Tyler Soderstrom, mm-hmm. who I think was in the conversation as a borderline candidate for I the think, list. I think Kyle Muller would have been, if you're talking post-trade, I know Matt considered him for the top 100, and he, he got a few votes on like individual lists, but I don't think he would have made it like he didn't make it. So he, he's not a top 100 prospect. But I think that's the one you could point to as like, yeah, it's a fringe guy. I think he can probably take on a bigger role on the team than he would have been otherwise with, with the Braves. But at the same time, Ryan Cusick was looking pretty good with the Braves, and then he went to Oakland, and everything fell apart. So I think there's some reason to question like they's pitching development, what's going on there. Yeah, I don't think anybody's expecting Kyle Muller to be a front-end starter either. I mean, <clears throat> Mason Miller, the right-hander they, they drafted out of um, uh, Gardner-Webb, a couple of years ago he has electric stuff it's upper 90s fastball up to 102 plus slider it's probably a reliever and you just go down the system you know even going to the back of like the top 15 now you're getting some pretty risky player types denzel clark uh loaded with tools in the outfield mm-hmm. also struck out 36 percent of the time yep. in a ball last year luis medina Ever since the Yankees signed him when he was 16, it's it's always been great stuff and pray that he figures out control. And then you don't get to a homegrown Latin American signing in the system until you get to the very back of the top 30. And this is what the farm system looks like in the midst of a rebuild or a, a tear, tear down. a tear down, right. Whatever, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. having traded Matt Olson and Frankie Montas and Matt Chapman and Shamanaya Bassett. And, you know, unlike the Braves, yeah. Unlike the Braves where the system is thin, at least in part, because you have Michael Harris in the big leagues at 21 and Spencer Strider at, you know, 23 and he's graduating two years after he was drafted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they and you're and you're and you're, and you're tra- you know the Braves are trading away players to enhance the major league team in Atlanta, and they have a whole bunch of players, a, b- a whole bunch of those young players locked into team friendly long term deals. The I mean, it's not like the major league roster in Oakland. It's it's not like they're beaming with young talent either. So they then the Braves now, yeah, right. So well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your Christian Paches of of the world, uh, your Shea Langoliers. So, I mean, what 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 do you think the chances are now that even if they aren't bringing up impact talent from the farm system, that the A's are going to go out now and spend big in free agency? Oh yeah, very low. Yeah, so negative, negative, negative so, odds there. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're coming off a, a 60 win season. I, I think I think we might see at least a couple more hundred loss seasons mm-hmm. for Oakland in the coming years, and then even beyond that, I, I think they have work to do. Just you know, beyond just nailing what looks like they should be a few more very high draft picks ahead just to get back to being a playoff competitor even by 2025 
Yeah, I mean, nothing really seems to be going well in Oakland. It doesn't even seem like the team is trying to be in Oakland. Um, it's weird to me because a lot of these trades, I feel like there was just a a desire to get a quantity of players rather than quality. Like, I would much rather have cut down on a few of the prospects that were coming back and instead increased... Um, the, the value of the players I'm getting back. I talked to a couple of people after some of those trades where they really wondered what the thinking was from Oakland's point of view. I mean, Sean Murphy is a probably a top five catcher in the game conservatively. And who's the best prospect they got back in that trade? Kyle Muller. I mean, I, I would rather have gotten back some hitting prospects and some, some more upside, I guess. I don't know. There, it just doesn't seem like, the trades make a whole lot of sense. And it's not... I don't think we're doing some sort of revisionist history either. People were criticizing these returns when they happened. So, yeah, I don't know. It's certainly not a system... It, it's a system where you would look at and think, oh, this team probably needs to rebuild. Not, this team is in the process of and has already traded off all their major league assets. It's very tough. Yeah, I don't... Uh... It's not an easy time to be an Oakland A's fan right now. I mean, nothing the organization is doing is helping you become more of a fan of the team. It, it, it seems very clearly that the team is trying to get out of the city, right? Oh, yeah. We talked about, like, best and worst owners before. I mean... Did we talk about <laughs> Oakland's ownership? I think it's got to be... It's got to be toward it's a miss the... on our part for not talking about how bad it was. Yeah, it's got to be toward the... Even among so many fan bases that really despise their ownership, they have to be toward the bottom or, or top, I guess, of the <laughs> of those rankings. It feels like a real-life major league scenario going on in Oakland, like the movie about the Indians. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, like it's happening. Except, except I like major league. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, man. Tyler Soderstrom, there's a lot of, a lot of weight on your shoulders. I, I like Tyler Soderstrom. I do a lot, yeah. I think he's going to be a great hitter. But, man... Can he teach? Can he teach Denzel Clark or Henry Bolt how to hit? That'd be great. Henry Bolty. Do we know how to pronounce his name? I should know that. Any? Uh, I don't know. Any? Any organizations jump out for you or, or surprise you, or you thought they were going to be their their thirty was going to be better than you were expecting? Um, the or Phillies you, is pretty yeah. top heavy. I think their system falls off pretty quickly. They're one of the teams um, that I mentioned that it gets to that 35 line pretty quickly, number seven overall. Um, I like the top end of the system, obviously. It's Andrew Painter, McAble, Griff McGarry. I like Justin Crawford quite a bit. But after that, it's a lot of question marks. There are not a lot of players that I feel super confident in. Uh, I think they could improve the depth of this organization quite a bit to help supplement what, what is actually like a really exciting major league team and an ownership group that seems to be trying to win in a, a really competitive division. But yeah, that one, once you get outside of the top five or so, I feel like it falls off pretty quickly. I mean, I'm just kind of scanning down the list and trying to find someone that, that I would be excited about. I mean, Noah song is interesting just because <laughs> got a little more depth now. huh? Yeah. It's a cool, it's a cool story and cool background, but I mean, how can you possibly be confident about a situation like Noah song? I, I hope it works out. I think it would be awesome. And Noah Song, in terms of arm talent at the draft, was was really, really good. Um, but being away from the game for so long, 
uh, and then the Rule 5 scenario that he's in, how they're going to handle him now. It almost would have been better if he didn't get released from his military duty until like later in the year for the Phillies. Yeah, I got to feel like either he's going to have like a stub toe that's going to put him on like the longest DL or IL stint <laughs> possible or or he's going to end up back with the Red Sox cuz if you're if you're a competitive team like the mm-hmm. Phillies, man, that's uh, it's a tough ass to keep him on the roster all season. Yeah. Another one that I thought um the depth was a little bit lacking, especially compared to an exciting top end, is the Cardinals. Um, you got mm. Jordan Walker, Tim Kentz, Mason Wynn. I, I'm pretty high on Matthew Libertor personally. And then really after that, I'm, I'm probably lower on Cooper Jerpy than a lot of people. Um, there are not a lot of bats that I feel too confident in after that. I, I'm really intrigued by Pete Hansen. Uh, I think St. Louis in general does a really good job with player development, so it wouldn't shock me if this system wound up being better than I'm expecting. But I do think that once you get outside of like top five to seven of this group, it falls off quite a bit. There are a lot of like college, polished college producers here. So again, like that seems like a player type that, that St. Louis has just done a lot of good things with. And I think even maybe looking at Alec Burleson as a player who is, who has exceeded the expectations that I had for him already Maybe this is more of a, a reason for me to buy into the Cardinals more than I should. Um, but th- that would be another one that I point to. What, what are your thoughts on St. Louis? I think I could see that. Yeah. I mean, their top six to seven is is really strong. I think all those guys were, were either top 100 guys or guys who came up in top 100 conversations. Um, and, I, you know, their top three, you know, Jordan Walker, Tink Hens. Mason win. I mean, that's, that's quite a 2020 draft <laughs> that the Cardinals had and three, three high school players. And I remember thinking at a time, like I, I, I was lower at the time on Jordan Walker. Mm-hmm. Um, so because I was a tall guy. He's, he's too big for you, Ben. You know, I thought, I didn't think he was a third baseman. I thought there was some, some length that was going to lead to some strikeouts and, you know, well, off, you, offensively that he's not a third baseman though well <laughs> i mean at the same time also in some fairness they're like they got a pretty good third baseman in, in st louis yeah, that, that's, that's so very true. that's very true so maybe in another organization you get a little bit more uh, of an opportunity to play there but i said at the time what i really liked i think i tweeted out was like man i i, I love the 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 arms the the high school arms the Cardinals are getting with Tink Hence and Mason Wynn. So I don't know, like half credit for for liking Tink Hence and Mason Wynn, even though why, I liked Mason why do you Wynn. Get half credit. Mason Wynn has maybe the best arm in baseball. You liked his arm, Ben. Well <laughs> I, I guess. I I was excited about him on the mound, man. I mean I still think if he can still be excited about him on the mound. If something you know, if if he needs to go to a plan B somehow down the road, so I mean he's a legitimate pitching prospect if he needs to go back to it. But um yeah, I mean Tink Hens looks like obviously we we want to see him do it in more than like three inning bursts. <laughs> There's only so much, you know, he can't control what the Cardinals allow him to do. And I understand why they're being conservative with him, but just the, 
the stuff across the board, fastball, curveball, slider, changeup, throwing strikes, missing bats with with so many different pitches. I think the the upside there is a, if if he has a durability is a front end type starter. I'm I am super excited by Tink Hens. And then they took a lot of college strike throwers in 2022 with their arms. I mean, Cooper Jerpy, Bryson Motts, Pete Hansen, who, who might be – you can make a case that he's the best command pitcher in the class last year – or last year, excuse me, Max Radich. I think they have a lot of interesting arms that fit the mold of players who, who teams seem to do a really good job adding velocity to. Gordon Graceffo is a perfect example, yeah. Yep, and they've done a good job with that, and it, again – I'm I'm kind of talking myself out of my position of of I don't like the Cardinals depth. We've we've kind of reached full circle here with me where I'm like maybe I'm maybe I was a little too low on paper. And I, once you actually look into some of these players a little deeper and, and some of the track record that St. Louis has had with similar player profiles, I mean they just consistently do a, a pretty good job. I do think Jordan Walker is a fascinating one because. I don't know that anyone expected Jordan Walker to be this sort of pure hitter. I mean, his power was pretty apparent at the time in high school, but I think I was with you. I was maybe less excited about the athleticism. He's still running better than I expected him to run in pro ball. The pure hitting ability is is better than I expected at the time. I think I would think probably better than anyone expected at the time. If you redrafted his year, he's he would have to be going top five. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, how many players, let me just pull up the 2020 draft here, which is looking like a pretty bad draft right now. Except for the Cardinals. Yeah, I guess except for the Cardinals. (laughs) So how many players in the first round? I'll just go, I'll I'll run through a few names, and you tell me who you would take over Jordan Walker, who was at number 21 overall, signed for $2.9 So Spencer, just say yes or no if you'd take Walker over this player, and we'll go through a few quickly. Spencer Torkelson. No. Heston Kerstad. No. Max Meyer. No. Asa Lacey. <laughs> Come on. I'm just going down the list now. Austin Martin. Ooh. No. Emerson Hancock. No. Nick Gonzalez. No. Robert Hassel. No, but he's good. Zach Veen. No, but that one's... He's he's a good one too. Yeah, Reed Detmers. No, but he's. I mean, so basically, the back of the top ten is pretty good. Okay, yeah. we'll skip a few here because I don't think you would say yes to. Okay, here's one actually, a few interesting. Pete Crow Armstrong, nineteen. No, but I think that could be debatable. I mean, we have Jordan Walker as a number four prospect in baseball. The only guys ahead of him are Gunner. Henderson, Corbin Carroll, and Jackson Churio. So, in terms of this draft class, I think it's basically Jordan Walker and Spencer Strider. Ooh, yeah, I Spencer think those Strider would be the one too. Would you take Strider over Walker? Because I, I think you can make a case for either one. To be honest, like Strider has done it at the big league level. I think you could still be skeptical of, of the the pitch mix if you wanted, uh, and how that projects over a few years as a starter versus like maybe a middle-of-the-order masher, just with pitcher attrition risk, too. But those feel like the obvious top two in this draft. I mean, I think if you even if you ranked out the top 20 players in the draft from that year, as of right now, I mean, the Cardinals have three. Got to have three of them. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I'm, I'm kind of scanning through it right now. 
Yeah, I mean, I did it like kind of intentionally. <laughs> I mean, I know top ten is probably more debatable, but mm-hmm. by the time you get to twenty, they, they got to have three of the top twenty between Walker and Mason Wynn and Tank Hens. Yeah, I posted this on Twitter the other day, actually. So I'll just pitch it to you now. Which twenty twenty draft would you take? And these could be the same question. Which one is more impressive to you, the Braves draft class or the Cardinals? So the Braves went. They had four picks. They took Jared Schuster. They took Jesse Franklin, they took Spencer Strider, and they took Bryce Elder. And then the Cardinals, their whole draft class. And the the beauty and the curse of 2020 is it's very easy to go through an entire draft class. Right. <laughs> they had seven. And they took Jordan Walker, in, Jordan Walker in the first round, Mason Wynn in the second, Tink Hentz and Alec Burleson in the supplemental second, Levi Prater in the third, Ian Bedell in the fourth, and LJ Jones in the fifth. Yeah, I was leaving out Burleson from that class too. That's that's incredible. Yeah, so I think you take the Cardinals. Yes, just in terms of I would. I mean, you could argue they have the best player, and they just in terms of quantity of, of quality players. Uh, but the Braves, I think, is impressive because you're looking at a class that has a real chance to get 100 percent big leaguers, which I'm sure has never happened, and it'll be cool even if there's a massive asterisk. Yeah, but that's just kind of a fun little trivia nugget that will be cool um, to talk about moving forward. But yeah, Yeah. really good draft in 2020 from St. Louis. All right, want to get into some uh, some listener questions? Yeah, let's do it. All right, got a question from Sam Gillen on Instagram. He said, "I was at Globe Life, which is for the college baseball showdown where you were." Carlos and was shocked at the pitch clock speed. Who do you think benefits more pitchers or hitters? I think the fans benefit more. Um, (laughs) It's an awesome, awesome environment, isn't it? The pitch clock. Yeah. So I'm I'm assuming this question means they're shocked at like how quick um, the pitch clock is. The SEC has new rules this year where they implemented a, a 20 second pitch clock for the pitcher and the batter has to be in the box and ready to hit at 10 seconds. Um, if, if either the pitcher doesn't start their delivery to the plate or the hitter is not in the box ready to hit at those time limits, they get a strike or a ball called. There were probably three to five instances of hitters getting a strike added, including a couple punch outs. Um, there so were, hitters, hitters striking out because they just weren't in the box on time. Yes, yes, that happened, and and it's it's a little bit jarring when you first see it, and I could see people hating it initially, but I think the teams and players adjust pretty quickly. The toughest part is there were a few instances where the hitter seemed to think he was in the box, and the umpire assigned the strike because he wasn't appropriately ready in the box. Um, so, so players are going to get used to it very quickly. I think, I think for pitchers, it's easier for starters to adjust to it because you mm. come out and you start. There's no one on base. You can kind of get into your rhythm. And being able to get into that rhythm and tempo early on, it, it really was not much of an issue for most of the starters. There were a few instances, and, and I think most of the pitching balls that were assigned were given to relievers who came in with runners on base and they kind of just come in from the bullpen and they're probably doing their typical routine and they haven't been able to get used to the pitch clock. Uh, And so that's something that relievers, it seems like have the biggest learning curve, but 
I think that that it's equal in terms of who does it benefit more. I don't I don't think that it gives anyone any sort of advantage. I think overall, probably actually the hitters, just because you're not able to to fully rest like you maybe would um, without a pitch clock. I can't see what the the benefit of more rest would be for a hitter, where like with a pitcher, especially in later outings for a starter, maybe those extra seconds actually do help you. But I think in terms of who benefits, it's just fans and people who are watching the game because the tempo is great. I think the the penalty is appropriate. I think the teams all can adjust to it pretty quickly because, I mean, no one wants to – getting a strike called on you for no reason other than you weren't ready, like, can ruin your at-bat. And it's also, like, all you had to do was step in the box. So, like, you, you simply had to be ready in time. It's not – a huge ask for the players. I think the umps did a really good job uh, consistently enforcing it for the most part throughout the weekend. And I think that's really the, the only scenario where pitch clocks could be bad is if the enforcement is bad and, and it wasn't in this outing. And I think that college games in particular can really drag because there are a lot of pitching changes with coaches calling the games. Sometimes it can take longer um, mm-hmm. just, just for that to happen. But We've seen a lot of teams starting to use different technologies to make that happen quicker. So I think in general, it's massively positive. I love going to games that have a pitch clock. I'm not sure that it'll ever be standard for high school just because it's a lot harder to get pitch clocks installed and have your umpires uh, do all that at the high school level. But, man, it would be great. Maybe it wouldn't be great. Maybe at, at that level you just need to let the kids worry about trying to, to play the game. But at college, it was it was pretty great. I like it. I think, yeah, I think the first weekend is going to be the roughest one because it's not like, you know, in in the big leagues, we're going to have spring training, right? And you're going to see the same kind of stuff where yeah. guys are going to get, you know, calling for time and not getting it or yep. called you know, automatic strikes because they're not ready in time, pitch clock violations, and you just don't have that same opportunity at the college level. And I think your, your point, I, I hadn't considered that about how relievers are probably – going to face a bigger adjustment to it because they're just not they're not getting as many reps especially early in the season to get accustomed to it yeah and as relievers they're probably throwing with more effort on each pitch they generally work slower than starters because they don't have to hold up over a long period of time so they're just going to air it out and try to rest as long as they can so i do think i think coming into like coming into games with runners on you're in a high pressure situation immediately and you're trying to put all of your effort into one pitch, kind of like you were saying, compared to the starter, when you're starting an inning clean and you kind of have, you have at least a few pitches um, without any runners on base, I think just being able to do that a couple times gets you in that mentality. It definitely seemed like the starters really had no problem. The one, the one issue you might run into is with runners on base. Um, there's some new rule. I don't know the specifics about it, but players picking off basically just to reset the pitch clock. Like you have to throw to the bag. And there are a few times where a pitcher stepped off the mound to throw behind to second base and no one was covering. And you kind of just lobbed to the shortstop standing at shortstop position, like how that's enforced. If there are any enforcement mechanisms for that will be interesting to see. Cause I wasn't entirely clear on, on how that was supposed to happen or what the rules were behind that. Um, that's also one area that would be maybe a little dicey at first before it gets resolved, especially yeah. at the big league level too, where you only have a, a few amount of pickoff attempts now. But to, to go back to Sam's original question, I, I think it 
benefits. I, I agree with Carlos and well, he doesn't answer your question. It does benefit the fans, but um, <laughs> overall, I think it probably is more of an advantage for the hitters because if you're a pitcher and you're able to take longer in between pitches, you're able just to have more fatigue dissipate and you're able to throw with a little bit more effort on each pitch. I don't think it makes a huge difference, but there's probably some minor difference at the margins where it can be an advantage for hitters. Now, I've seen hitters complain and say, oh, I need more time to be able to mentally reset. You got to get in the box and like we got to get back to (laughs) we got to get back to a pace of play and a flow in the game that that used to be there that frankly was just old school baseball of just step in the box and swing yeah the the pitchers and and the hitters to some extent are just going to have to make some some sacrifices and some compromises to create a better a better game and a better product for for fans did you did you see the did you see the yeah, I was gonna say Christian Moore, Tennessee infielder, where he was like calling, he's like time, time, yeah. time, like screaming time, like finally like sticks his you hand up. I did see that, and credit to Christian Moore for like get once he realized when the delivery was happening and the pitch is coming. I feel like I've seen a lot of instances of players just giving up on the pitch when they don't get time called and and looking aghast at the pitcher. But a credit to Christian Moore for actually getting back in the box. And at least trying to to be competitive as a ball, and he ended up walking. But that was that was um, pretty crazy. And I don't think I mean there's no rule that you have to get time if you ask for it. The umpire doesn't have to give you time if they don't think you need it. Um, so yeah, you have to kind of just stick in there if you're not hearing it. Um, just get in the box and do the best you can. Most most umps, if there's a real need for you to call time, like I think there was an issue. Braden Taylor, there was one pitch where he thought it was ball four. So he started taking off his um, shin guard and going down to first. Oh, no. The ump, the ump <laughs> called a strike. And he very quickly said, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I thought it was a ball. Can I get time? And the ump granted that. And so the oh, clock okay. didn't reset. The ump wasn't resetting the 22nd clock, but the clock started. So the fans obviously saw it, and it got to past 10. He wasn't ready, but the ump had never signaled for the clock to start again. So he obviously didn't enforce uh, he had granted time basically and the, whoever's running the pitch clock didn't realize it. And so the Arkansas fans are livid at this point, screaming for it to be enforced. So I think there are situations where clearly you will get time, but you don't necessarily have to get time called it just because you call for it. That is definitely going to happen in a major league game and, and, and they're not going to give them time and yes. it's going to be like yes. super awkward. But I, and I, so I, and I get why in that situation, like Christian Moore totally understand why he was frustrated in that situation, like every probably hitter in college baseball would be too. But at the same time, you know, people say, Oh, like this is an ump show. No, like this is the new rules. Mm -hmm. They're, they're setting the tone. Yeah. It's saying, look, this is, this is the new reality Mm -hmm. of college baseball. We're going to play at, you know, a a more rapid pace than you guys are used to. So you gotta be, you gotta be ready to, to hit. And it's, it is probably going to be tough because, even when I played, and I think most people who play now, when when you call for time, you, I would say ninety five percent of the time, get it. Like you just get time called. It's not a big deal. There's no clock going. 
But yeah, there's not going to be a lot of scenarios where you can just call time, take a few breaths, mess with your batting gloves, step out, walk around. Like that's that's unnecessary. We don't need it. It's not fun for the game. We want to just, like you said, catch the ball, throw the ball. Let's play. And at the minor league level, we've all seen it happen, and it's a fantastic viewing experience. I think it's good for the game. And if part of that is also that you get pitchers throwing fewer max effort pitches and the game shifts a little bit closer towards the balance of hitters because it's very solidly in the power of pitching right now. I think that's just a a great extra benefit. I am curious, Sam, if you liked it personally, you said you were shocked by it, but let us know. Like, did you, did you think it was different while watching it and and everyone else? Because I know there are a lot of people who are skeptical of the pitch clock and you even had talked about this previously in the podcast, Ben, how you were and Mm -hmm. then you experienced it and liked it. I'm curious if you guys listening, like what your thoughts are now and then after you experience it, if it changes or if, or if you still don't like it or just what are your general thoughts are on the Yeah, game, leave us, uh, yeah, leave us a comment on at uh, Future Pro Pod on Twitter, but also give it a month too and see how your thoughts are then because I think it's jarring at first and seeing, you know, if you're at a game and you're like, wait, that guy just got called out on strikes and there wasn't a pitch thrown, like, I, that is frustrating to see, yes. but I think in a month, that's going to be pretty rare to to see that. Yeah, I've talked to a number of people who didn't initially like the idea of the pitch clock, but once they experienced the game, they liked it. I haven't heard from a lot of people who were the opposite or or have been adamantly against it. And, and this could be just a, a bias or a selection bias, but it seems like most people kind of like it. And I do think that the clock... It's not really jarring. It fades into the background pretty quickly. Like it's not something that I find myself really noticing a ton. Mm-hmm. Brad Bell on Instagram asks, "What impacts player development the most? Is it investment by owners, good staff, or is it something else?" This is a good question. Um, I don't think it's investment by the owners, and I think teams like Tampa Bay and Cleveland um, who are some other teams who are notoriously don't have big spending owners. And, and I guess you well, could they say that those teams, yeah. you can invest in player development without investing in the major league product. But I think in general, like the amount of money you're investing is very, very minimal. And maybe this is where some teams like Cleveland, like Tampa Bay, or like instead of investing in, players we're going to invest more than other teams do in our staffing for player development and try to make gains that way but i think that's still the best what impacts player development most is probably the actual staff on the ground who are helping these players develop good coaching and i think all the teams that i've talked to who i think are the best at player development they all talk about the way that they communicate between departments as being like one of the keys to their success and i think there's got to be something to that with multiple teams and multiple people with those teams telling me that that's how they've been successful so i think it's good staff i think it's like very good interdepartmental communication and individualized development plans for players not having some overarching team philosophy that you kind of try to hammer onto everyone regardless of their strengths and weaknesses and the way their body moves and the way their body works all three of those things i feel like are the biggest keys and i feel like any team can do that maybe in the good staffing part but i think there are even examples of teams who who have lost a lot of 
like highly regarded coaches or front office officials and they kind of keep plugging along because they've developed really good processes for what they're doing. So I think maybe if I had to to dial this down to one thing, I, I think it's like high quality interdepartmental communication and individualized development plans, I think would probably be the most important. What about yeah, you? I do. I do think owners have more of an impact uh, maybe than, than you're kind of giving them credit for. Um, nothing. Well, not uh, maybe even more, they can have a negative impact <laughs> than, than a positive one. If you just don't give your people on the ground, the resources that they need. Um, like you said, the, you know, maybe the Rays and, and guardians are not spending a lot on their major league payroll, but you can still invest a lot into the, you know, into having larger coaching staffs at each level, more, more roving instructors. You can invest more into different types of, of technology to, to aid the development of your players. But ultimately I think it does come down to the, the coaches that you hire, the, the, the people who are on the ground in player development, hands-on working with the players to get them better. And yeah, I agree with a lot of the points that you made about the, you know, being able to have everybody be on the same page, not just be a, uh, not necessarily be a cookie cutter organization and say, Oh, we're going to teach everybody this sweep, you know, the, the sweeper slider or, uh, give force every pitcher to throw that, or we're going to have every hitter, you know, try to swing the same way. But, and even, I think even something as simple as like having the pieces in place to, explain to players what you're doing is important so you can have if every team like let's say you have the best analyst in baseball if you don't have someone who is able to translate the data that you're looking at or uh, whatever you're getting from rap soto in terms of trying to change a pitch if you can't translate the like higher level data to the player then it's not going to have any sort of impact so having both the analysts and the coaches who understand the analysts at a high enough level, but can translate that into actionable um, coaching to the players, I think is super important because, I mean, you could get all the analysts in the world that are way smarter than me, but if you don't, if you don't have the ability to take the information they have and take out what is important and what a player needs to know versus what's really not relevant for them, they don't need to be thinking about. I think that's probably pretty key too, because it could be very easy to just overload someone with data. We have so much more data and information now and pieces of just all kinds of breakdowns of what you're doing as a player, how your body moves. You could get lost in the data and, and really overwhelm yourself and, and back up because you're trying to you're trying to take in too much that you really just don't need to. So having the the coach as the in between um, to be able to kind of step into both worlds there, I feel like is really key. And we got Egg on Instagram asking, are there any skills or tools that MLB teams believe that they can consistently get players to improve once they get into pro bowl, such as bat to ball skills or arm strength? Clubhouse chemistry. <clears throat> Getting, they can consistently get their chemistry better. They can make Tristan Casas stop uh, sun tanning in the outfield before games. That's what they can definitely improve on. No, this is a good one too. I think um, I'll let you go first, actually, on this one. 
Right. I think there's something that I, that I think of that the teams generally think they can improve on. I think it, so it, it in part depends on what level of player you're looking at, right? So for a college hitter, it's going to be very different than if you're drafting a high school hitter or signing a 16, 17 year old international free agent. Um, I would say one that seems to apply certainly to, um, you know, the younger 16, 17 year old international signings, but now even college players that probably was not really the case several years ago is, is velocity for pitchers, uh, teams, you know, it's not for every pitcher, but there's a lot of guys who teams look at and say, oh, we can get this guy stronger or there's something we can tweak in this guy's delivery, his arm action, something to squeeze a few more ticks of velocity out of him. Uh, sometimes command, too. Um, you know, you, you see a pitcher with great stuff and something is there in his delivery where a lot of times the teams will think, oh, well, if we can just get him more online to the plate and improve his direction, change this or that in his delivery, uh, we'll be able to to fix him. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that works. Sometimes <laughs> it's overconfidence in, in how much I think you can would, change would, the player. I think I would personally differentiate <laughs> command and control there because I think, I think teaching command – seems very difficult and i feel like if teams had actually figured out how to do that we would have seen a bigger impact on on all these players with great stuff who don't have any clue where it's going but it does seem like a team like the rays is a good example of an Mm -hmm. organization that has done a nice job changing the approach of a pitcher to throw more strikes and just let their stuff play I don't necessarily think that means they've improved a player's command, but simply changing what a pitcher is trying to do, whether that's going from trying to hit spots within the zone versus literally throw this pitch over the plate and then let its movement carry it to the edge of the strike zone. That seems like much more actionable for teams and something they can do versus teach command. I think command is significantly harder to teach. I wouldn't what? say that you can't teach it, but it, it feels like if teams could teach it, they would have just arms coming up out of out of every every team they have in the minors. Well, well, what you mentioned about the Rays ties into another one, which is, and and probably applies to hitters some too, is approach, where teams will look at a pitcher, let's say a, a college pitcher even, and say, oh. Well, we we really like this guy's slider, but he's he's way too fastball heavy in college. His pitch usage is all. Well, let me tell you, Ben. There are no college pitchers who are too fastball heavy at this point. <laughs> right. they're, they're all throwing curveballs all the time. All right. Well, well maybe but that's no. not a, a good no, good, good example then. But but the just or or this guy's throwing a four seam or two seam fastball, but we really think he should be throwing a four seamer so we can we see something where we can fix just his approach um, more so than you know we can enhance a tool of of his in particular um, and, and and sometimes for for hitters too uh, I mean I think it's tough but especially if you're looking at younger hitters there are definitely teams that will say oh 
this guy has, you know, unbelievable bat speed and power and athleticism. And, you know, we think he's, you know, a 16, 17 year old international free agent. We can, or, or even a high school player in some case, we think we can get him to rein it in a little bit and, and improve his plate discipline, improve his swing decisions. I think, and again, it depends how young you're talking about. That's kind of a, a tough bet for me to make in, in a lot of cases. But if the question is what do some teams think they can do, I think that would, uh, that would fall into it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, one that I think of with this is fielding in general. I think a lot of teams think that once you get a player into pro ball, just having the additional time for instruction of defensive work helps, especially catching. A lot of teams I've talked to really don't think there are a lot of great options for amateur players uh, in terms of being coached at the catcher position. And once you're in pro ball, there's a lot more time where you can focus on fielding. So I think there's a general feeling that once you get into pro ball, you can be sharpened up as a defender. I don't think that this means that you're taking a, a third baseman and converting him into a shortstop, but in terms of maybe refining uh, the reliability of a player or improving defensive actions or improving hands, like I think all of these things, there's it's easier to improve your defensive work than like improve your bat to ball skills. So I think there is some room for, for fielding to improve at the pro level. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good one. And the other ones for too, maybe that you get in pro ball, you're just doing it every day. I think there's something to that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the other ones for, for young hitters and then for, or for young pitchers and young hitters, young pitchers, especially high school pitchers and international pitchers, I think teams are looking especially at fastball, breaking ball, and then saying, yeah, this guy doesn't have a much of a changeup right now, but whatever, you know, he's, he's in high school. He hasn't, he throws 95 miles an hour. He doesn't need to throw a changeup in high school. So he just hasn't really focused on it yet. He's just been fastball, breaking ball throughout high school. Once we teach him how to throw a changeup, once he gets more repetitions with it, um, there's more confidence you can potentially at least develop that pitch. And then the other one is just getting stronger and more power from a young hitter. Uh, a lot of teams, you know, like the Guardians are, are a good example. Well, they'll sign guys who, you know, they're not even necessarily that tall, but they're, you know, slender players who have really good hand-eye coordination, make a lot of contact, and then they they hope that the power is going to come later just as they as they get stronger it's probably easier and i would agree it's it's easier to get a player stronger and add more power uh, and you know depending on how young you're talking about sometimes even more more bat speed too than it is to you know overhaul a, a player's swing or or fix a player's vision <laughs> when it comes to issues with uh, you know, the pure bat to ball skills. I think the development of, of strength and power, especially in, in young hitters is something that, um, you know, a lot of teams expect will develop uh, or can develop later on. Yeah, for sure. Those are good ones. I don't think I had any more. All right. Any other questions? 
are those not, that's it for today. I think, um, I think we're at two hours now. (laughs) We are, we've we've hit our two hour mark, so we've done our duty to you guys. Um, but again, if you want to send us questions, we've got an email now, future projection at baseballamerica.com. Send those to us. Um, at any point you get them, we'll collect them. We'll go through them. We'll throw them out. If they're bad questions, we won't answer them. Uh, and if they're good ones, we'll answer them on here. Um, but we'll definitely read them all. I can promise you that. I don't know that we can promise we'll answer them all, Ben. Can Can you make that promise? I'm, I'm not making any <laughs> promises <laughs> right. here. Um, what do you have coming up, Ben? Any, any travel? Uh, I know you're in the Northeast, high school baseball, college baseball, not really super active for you but next week i'm i'm getting to some local stuff here around virginia i uh, got a few more college weekend trips coming up so i'm i'm thrilled um it's been fun we've been talking about this for weeks about getting out on the field and it's it's really been nice to actually sit at a game chop it up with scouts and listen to the arkansas crowd boo rock Regio relentlessly it's been fun yeah no we might have some snowball fights here but that's about it <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Uh, Thank you for supporting the podcast. Give us a rating and a review if you feel so inclined and you haven't done so yet. Um, And thank you to all the BA subscribers who we assume if you're at hour two of this podcast, you are supporting. But if you're not, uh, definitely consider it. We're able to do everything we do and travel around the country and see players and break them down for you and talk about them because of of your support. So we really, really appreciate, um, those who do, uh, and just thank you for listening to the podcast, even if you don't. So much appreciated for Ben, for Carlos. See you next time, everybody.